Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to a new episode of the Thos Hermes podcast today on Sunday, February 6, 2021. And yes, this is already episode 23 of our season 7, so that means that we will have our last episode of season 7 next week. Yeah, we finished episode. Uh, we finished season seven. Sorry about it. We finished season seven. And of course, season eight is coming very soon. Just one week break after the season. And then we'll start with a new season. And already on the 20th, yes, I believe, no, the 27th of February, it will be the last Sunday on February, will be the start of season eight. And today, my guest on this episode 23 is Peter Mark Adams. Peter Mark Adams, you know him probably by two books he's released previously, which were about, uh, well, we talk about that in the interview. I won't tell you everything now, and now is the intro anyway. So I say hello to everyone who is being a returning customer, and there are quite a few new customers lately. I see that we have gained quite a few new listeners over those last few weeks, and that really makes me happy. Thank you so much, and I assume that you are now returning the second, the third, the fourth time. Have you already gone to the website, thoughtshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com? Well, if not, go there. You'll find all the 110 or so episodes that we have done so far and you can listen to all of them there and you get all the show notes and talking about show notes you should absolutely each time when you listen to one of our episodes go on the website look up the show notes the links to the artists web pages what they have to say there maybe some new releases which have happened since we released the podcast it's always worth it so please do go there and um have a look on the website thoughthermes.com. And while you're there, send me a message, send me a feedback, tell me what you like, what you don't like, who you would like to hear on this website or any other ideas you might have. And while you're there, yes, now you know what's coming. Become a patron. You'll find a donation button if you prefer a one-off donation or you'll find also a button um, to become a patron on Patreon um, from $1 per episode. You are with us and we really do need you and um, we need more support. I am very honest about that. We need to do something in season eight about that. And I'll run a little campaign starting with season eight, dear friends. So um, go there, become patrons. And thanks to all of you who already are patrons and who are supporting this podcast and make it happily possible. Yeah, what else did I want to say? I think that is the usual intro, isn't it? Now, know what's coming, music. And I have a special treat for you here today. 
Um, those of you who are longtime customers from the very beginnings, from the first two seasons at least, I remind you we had a lovely intro back then uh, sung by Australian musician and which um, Wendy Rule and at the time in in the very first episode you can even hear her talk to me because she graciously gave that music to me for intro and outro and uh, ever since then I really love her music when she has new releases I already played twice I believe it was uh, her music on this show and today there's a special treat because back in I believe it was 2009, but she is not quite sure about that herself on the website. Um, she did a, in her, a jazz concert, actually, together with a friend of hers. She did that jazz concert, which uh, was recorded. And today we are going to play three uh, jazz classics from that concert back then uh, by Wendy Rule. Uh, and I think it's really lovely. Her friend is called Roger Perrin or Roger Perrin. I think it's Roger Perrin. And um, the music that uh, Wendy sings there, it's three really classical jazz numbers. And well, one of them isn't even jazz, you're going to hear. Um, but she does it in a jazzy way. And you can hear her lovely voice and her musicality and everything in that music. And it's very, very enjoyable. So we'll start right away with one big classic, one big, big classic um, that is Summertime from Porky and Bess by George Gershwin. And she does it in her own version together with her friend and musician colleague Roger Perrin. So let's not wait for any longer. Wendy Rule is back with Roger Perrin and they sing and perform George Gershwin's Summertime. Enjoy.
What a lovely version, what a beautiful voice, what beautiful musicians those two are. Roger Perrin and, of course, our Wendy Rule. If you haven't had enough of her and of that summertime that she performed here, do stay on, first of all, because, of course, there are two more numbers and you find all her music on Bandcamp now. Also, this release, which I discovered there, and I will put the link to her website because, as you know, she is now also teaching witchcraft and um, and also a link to her Bandcamp page. You'll find all that in the show notes of this week. So stay with us for more music, but especially stay with us now for the interview. That's why most of you come here, of course. And as I said, I am going to talk to Peter Mark Adams. Peter Mark Adams, who... Um, which many of you, and I must say, including myself, I had heard about it, but I wasn't sure, is working also as a healer and together with his wife is um, doing extraordinary work. And he recently, very recently actually, published a book on inner traditions, which is called The, the Power of the Healing Field. And um, um, I'm always very cautious about that kind of books and, and works because there's a lot of things around that personally I judge very critically but really this one I really liked and when you will listen to our talk with Peter Mark Adams you will probably also realize why I like that so much. He's a very serious guy, he has a very occultist approach and magician approach to all of that. Well, I won't take you more uh, now, but tell you more now because we speak about all that in the interview in just a minute. But before that, before I go to the interview as usual, I will read you a few lines from that book and I will read you an excerpt from that uh, first part of the book uh, where he gives it the title, The Parameters of reality and consciousness, because I think that sets a few things clear um, about what we're going to talk here. So listen, the parameters of reality and consciousness. The reality revealed through energy-based healing is quite different from the world of most people's day-to-day -day experience. Like most of us, I have been raised to believe that what you see is all there is, and everything in the universe can be reduced to and explained by particles of matter bumping into one another. But the accounts of healing gathered here, drawn for the most part from our own case files, reveal that this picture is grossly inadequate. The reality is far more complex, multidimensional and connected than we imagine. Each and every one of us, using only natural methods, can realize a level of healing and positive personal transformation far beyond conventional expectations. Like almost everyone, I possess an inbuilt skepticism to any suggestion that reality is fundamentally different from what my day-to-day -day experience and mainstream science tells me. When challenged by anomalies that exceed this one-size-fits-all worldview, the response is usually one of ridicule, outright dismissal, or rationalization. However, there are very good reasons why a change in our worldview is long overdue. People are increasingly aware and accepting the fact that their experience does not accord with mainstream science. 
Recently, one of the world's leading philosophers, Thomas Nagel, triggered a storm of criticism by stating the obvious fact that the 500-year-old scientific project of attempting to explain everything in terms of interactions among the smallest particles, called reductive materialism, has failed. A similar argument has been advanced by biologist and complexity theorist Stuart Kaufman. It failed because it cannot account for the most defining and essential features of life. Consciousness, agency, meaning, and values. So, a highly interesting approach, I'm sure. And, um, well, I suggest we dive now into the interview with Peter Mark Adams. We'll speak mostly, mainly about that book, but also about himself and his two other works he's published so far in completely different fields. And But you see that all those things meet in at a certain point, like it often is the case in this world of the Western esoteric tradition. Okay, I will not make you wait any longer now. We're going to meet Peter Mark Adams in just a little moment. And before that, just a reminder that I will come back to you in about 33 minutes after the first part of the interview. And we will play one other piece then at that break, one other piece sung and performed by Wendy Rule and Roger Perrin. But now let's go and meet Peter Mark Adams. Here comes the interview. Well, it's somehow like a trip back in time for me this week, because last week on the Thought Hermes podcast, I had my good friend Greg Kaminsky, who was my guest with whom I had a very nice and long interview. And then memories come back, of course. And um, we just spoke with my guest today, Peter Mark Adams, that I think it was 2019 that we last met. And actually, we had met twice on Greg Kaminsky's Occult of Personality, because when Peter launched his wonderful books, The Game of Saturn and Mistai, back in time, I think that was 2018 and 2019, um, we met with Greg and Peter on Occult of Personality. And it's a great pleasure for me here today on the Thoughts Hermes podcast to welcome you back, Peter. Hello. Glad to have you here. Great to have you here. Thank you, Rudolf. Lovely to be back after uh, what, two years of pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's somehow like a hole in time. It, it, we didn't stay young, but we we aged anyway. But somehow it's still like a hole in time, those two years, funny enough. Um, yes, well, Peter, um, the return of Peter Mark Adams was caused by a surprise to me. Um, because that surprise came with a new book that was launched um, a few weeks ago only by Inner Traditions, which is called The Power of the Healing Field. And its subtitle is Energy Medicine, Sea Abilities and Ancestral Healing. And that, to be honest, after your first two books that we just mentioned, um, I wasn't at all expecting from you. And um, on the other hand, it's because it came from you, it's 
told me immediately I have to talk to you about this on my show. So um, uh, before we go into that book, Peter, I would nevertheless just like to present you as a person a little bit. Um, you are somebody who I've learned to be an extremely serious thinker, going in depth in esoteric subjects. But what made you that? What brought you there? What initially, I don't know when, but what triggered your interest into spirituality and esoteric and the occult in general? Uh, born that way is the, is the short <laughs> answer, Rudolf. <laughs> Make it a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've always felt a connection to the uncanny. I mean, from mm. my earliest childhood, three or four years old, I had a sense of presences. And it's, it's kind of a haunting sense. It's disturbing. It's, it's, it's not something that sits easily with you. Mm -hmm. um, and very early on, uh, can combine with that, kind of sensitivity um, was a very early trip to, to Egypt when I was eight okay. or nine years old. Mm -hmm. So that I was in the pyramids, I saw the Tutankhamun uh, treasures. And this was like um, a kind of coming home. So at this age, of course, there's, there's no perspective, there's no frame for any of this. It sure. just kind of pours over you. And uh, I guess by the age of, I don't know, 13 or 14, I was seriously reading. Uh, we, had, we had a journal that came out around that time, Man, Myth and Magic, mm -hmm. which had, had some real serious articles. Um, and we saw the first few books on topics like witchcraft started to appear. And on top of that, things like the Thoth tarot deck and the uh, Pamela Coleman's um, tarot deck. Yeah. So there was a kind of big explosion of esoterica at that time. And I was kind of wandering through this labyrinth by myself. Um, I'm very much solo uh, explorer. I have to say some people are very much joiners mm -hmm. on I'm very much a solo explorer. And um, parts of this exploration, you know, when you used to go into libraries back in the late 60s, early 70s, there'd be shelves upon shelves of ancient books uh, by, for instance, first editions of Blavatsky. And you could get, I would spend hours poring over these things. And again, I, I didn't really have a framework for any of this stuff until quite late in life. Um, I would say my path took me through uh, the martial arts so that I started gaining a real um, proficiency in energy, in energy work. Um, and from there, uh, you bump into people as you go through life. And I was introduced to the Kabbalah, um, ritual magic. Uh, and, and so it just grows and grows. So you, you're kind of exploring on a very broad front for decades, covers mythology, um, Near Eastern religions, Far East, um, Buddhism, Tantra, <laughs> Freemasonry. It's, it's like, you know, a vast feast and uh, everything is laid on the table. So you tend to overindulge in everything. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's funny you say that you're a solitary worker because that seems to be the trend here on this podcast, maybe because of me, I'm as well. And many of my guests say that in a way that they are not those group people. So maybe authors also tend to be a bit more the solitary people. Uh, maybe that's part of it. But I, I kind of cut you off. You said you had this whole view on, on the whole thing, but I think you wanted to go into some concrete direction after that, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think it's the work I did in the martial arts and the work I did with Reiki um, that really brought all of the esoteric background into a focus. Um, it's it's where, so to speak, the, the wheels touch the road. Um, I think with the martial arts, you're you're dealing with very high levels of internal key energy, and mm. with Reiki, you're you're dealing with channeled spiritually directed energy. So right. these are the two components actually, which are integral to the magical traditional, uh, just as they're integral to thurgy, to, to many other traditions, but with two practical disciplines, they're brought into a very sharp focus. Um, I wonder if it's the moment now, but maybe we should just use the moment. You mentioned Reiki and Reiki, as you are a specialist on that, and you also write quite a bit about it in the new book. We're going to talk more in-depth a bit later. Um, maybe you could help our audience. Sometimes you get the impression that Reiki is seen by many esotericists as something rather superficial, right? Um, as opposed to other types of, of Eastern healing practices, um, because that's the impression. I'm not saying that is correct. I want you to correct that image um, to get that impression that people can kind of self-define that they are Reiki specialists and very easily gets to a level that they are allowed to apply their their energy to others. So can you correct that image a bit? And what is Reiki for you exactly? And how did you experience and learn it? I think the key thing is that uh, we have the word Reiki in the West, mm -hmm. um, but it actually applies to one unique lineage rather than a generic practice. Hands-on healing is known from certainly the Middle East, right across Central Asia, through China, India. But Reiki is, is a system developed by Mikao Sui, who was a Tendai Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And it came to him as a spiritual, what he called a satori, a, a spiritual um, implosion, if you wish, mm -hmm. influx. Um, which was not of his own doing. He, he was a competent internal energy practitioner, but this was a wholly external energy. Mm -hmm. So that for me, Reiki is a lineage-based system that leads directly back to him. And if you're claiming to be a Reiki practitioner, you will have that lineage. In my own case, it's like three or four steps from myself back to Mikawa Sui. And I have all the names of the teachers in between. So from that, a lot of, as Reiki became popular in the eighties, a lot of people started developing their own systems. Okay. And calling it Reiki. I'm not criticizing that. I'm simply saying, I don't know what it is that they're channeling. Right. You know, some of them, Kundalini Reiki, for instance, um, I found it very disturbing. Other people mm. loved it. And all I'm trying to say about this, if it's not Maku, Mikau Usui Reiki with a lineage, 
then you don't actually know what you're getting. It's, you know, it could be good for you. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying it's not, strictly speaking, Reiki. So we're talking about spiritually directed life force energy. Um, and a little bit of tech here might help people. Every part of our body from the bones through the viscera, the organs, generates an electromagnetic field in the extremely low frequency of 0.5 to around 60, 70 hertz or cycles mm-hmm. per second. Okay. When a hands-on healer uh, gives healing, they generate the same frequency wave. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it undulates through 0.5, 70 hertz cycles per second. So it matches the energy fields naturally generated by the various parts of the body. Right. In the case of a Reiki practitioner, those waves are up to a thousand times greater in amplitude than is naturally generous. So in energy forced, so to speak. Yeah. So mm-hmm. now this is not the Reiki practitioner's energy in any shape or form. There's nobody generates right. <laughs> energy at that level. Yeah, Maybe sure. Some bioenergists who train three to four years can do so. Um, certain yogis and natural healers, they're people who spent decades cultivating energy. But in the case of Reiki, you get the initiation, valid initiation, I say, and it switches on a connection to a higher level of being. These mm-hmm. are pure spiritual entities or beings whose single focus is healing. And, and by being a Reiki practitioner, all you're doing is putting yourself between a person and those beings to act as a channel for that energy. Right. Okay. Right. This, mm-hmm. this, this, is, this is part of a spiritual discipline because it's no good getting this initiation and then going off to the pub and, and, and eating whatever you like. And then maybe mm-hmm. a year later, you come back to it. If you get this initiation, you need to spend a minimum of 10 days to two, three weeks in which you detoxify, you apply before, the... Before the initiation, actually, you mean? Yeah, you should really, if you're serious yes. about this. Yes. It's a healing yes. path. It's not just a uh, an entertainment or a, a kind of, yeah. let's see if there's something like that. If you're sure. going to interact with higher order beings, you need to be in alignment with what it is that they represent. And this is really important thing. It's like surgery. This is practical surgery. If you're not in alignment, it ain't going to happen. Mm. So um, you need to do the practice with Reiki every single day to yourself and you need to find people um, and, and they can be four-legged persons <laughs> to give Reiki to uh, every day. And until you can feel it in your hands buzzing, um, you, you, you know, you're not going to have the confidence to undertake acts of healing. Right. Okay. Right. So it's right. a system. That's the important thing. It's not a kind of an event I got initiated, but I couldn't feel anything. Oh, well, you know, this is a very incorrect framing, you know, which could only happen in in a Western culture, to be honest. Mm 
Yes, absolutely. Well, what you say about Kundalini Reiki is a bit what I think about power yoga. It's you know, it's 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 such a contradiction those 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 things in themselves, and uh, absolutely. So, um, um, thank you for that. That made it much much clearer, I'm sure, for many of us here. And I I proved me right when I said that when I saw that book signed Peter Mark Adams, uh, I knew this was going to be serious talk about serious matters here. I, um, I can add something to that, that that may be of interest to your listeners, um, which is the the presence of the teacher um, when I first encountered Reiki. Um, and this was a woman who had extremely powerful Kundalini naturally. And, and as I sat talking to her, uh, I started to see these green blobs forming in my visual field. And I thought there's something wrong. I was like rubbing my eyes. I was looking out of the window. There was nothing there. I looked back at her and they were getting stronger and stronger until there was like a, um, a green and blue oil paint flowing over her body and emanating this green field out 10, 12 centimeters all around her. So I understood that the intensity of the energy that she had was a, an awakening force on anyone in her proximity. Mm. So the, the initiations I undertook from her into Reiki 1, Reiki 2 were profoundly impactful. And, and, and certainly in the second degree initiation, I found myself going into a very bright pool of light um, and I felt totally embraced and surrounded by loving presences. And such was the sense of homecoming that when I finally found myself back in my chair in the room where the initiation had taken place and everyone had long gone, I felt devastated at the loss of that blissful uh, state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let, let's not be uh, fooled or, or mistaken here. These energies are capable of transporting you into states which you would only normally associate with full-on thurgy. Well, that's what I think fascinating the way you, you say that and the way you mention it, because um the way you express that uh talking about reiki healing is exactly like a serious um ceremonial magician would talk about his or her surgical practice uh, and of course that also needs that day-to-day personal practice to be able to do something to third party uh, about it otherwise it it wouldn't even be able you would be a charlatan but all what it is um so i find that really fascinating and there is a very direct link from from what i'm used to and probably many of our listeners here are to what you are talking about here and to those healing practices let's let's try to use that bridge peter for a moment i i just for a moment to go back to your two previous books because um i don't want to talk too much about them here because people can go to a cult of personality and listen to those interviews if they want to get an in-depth view on them but still um it's part of your 
personal, also esoteric history and story um, that brought you to those two books. Maybe you can just give a little overview of those two books, what they are and why you wrote them, what inspired you back then to, to write those two beautiful books, actually, both really nice volumes, nice to touch and watch and artwork, right? I think we can thank Scarlet Imprint, Peter Gray Absolutely. and Alcestis Demek, you know, for, Absolutely. for who have also been on that podcast about two years back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. For being the, you know, the midwives of, of, of those, those beautiful works. Definitely. Um, in the case of the game of Saturn, it was, I felt more that I was caught up by something um, which I couldn't put my finger on, which became a compulsion. It was the sight of the deck for the first time. I think it must have been shortly after it was purchased by the Brera Gallery in Milan. And mm. so there was a kind of exhibition and catalogue, and it had a certain currency at the time. But I'd been interested in, in tarot since I was either 13 or 14 years old. And this was now 2009, you know, so <laughs> I spent decades on tarot imagery and I couldn't understand anything from what I was looking at on those cards. And it really got to me <laughs> <laughs> because firstly, the quality of the artwork was outstanding. There had been considerable uh, knowledge, craft expended on creating this deck. Definitely, yeah. It was like unique. There was there was no other deck uh, like it, or, or or even a copy of it existing, mm. and, and that's extraordinary. The, also, the fact that it been in private ownership from the time of its creation in around fourteen ninety until two thousand and nine. I mean, it's, it's centuries. Um, so and although it did the survive deck, also that is amazing right yeah the amazing thing is the quality of it, it it's, it's like it's just been unwrapped from a you know sealed box mm. there's only one or two cards that show a very slight wear on them as though they've been held and that that's another story so i embarked on this quest to try and understand the imagery and as i did so it kind of sucked me into a a black hole literally <laughs> mm -hmm. um, i started getting very intense sensations of energy coming in literally burning energy and certain days it would be almost like all my muscles were locked i mean i, I spent decades on energy work uh, rudolph so you know, when I'm saying this energy is really intense, my God, it was something unbearable at times. Mm -hmm. But um, it was associated with the receipt of hints and sources and resources that came in just at the right time to allow the research to progress in a nice, smooth way, you know. Mm. Um, and it, I think one point my partner started hearing a, a voice um, and the strange thing about this is that I couldn't make sense of it. I mean, it was Elohim. I, I know Elohim, but this was not that. It, it, Elohim didn't make any sense to me. And it was, mm -hmm. it was like weeks later I was reading, uh, I think, Athenagoras. And in there he has some lines preserved from um, Hellenistic philosopher whose work is otherwise lost. And, and one of those lines read, you know, um, 
Elohim is another name for Saturn. I mean, Elos is another name for Saturn. And the followers of Saturn are known as the Elohim. Okay. It's absolutely extraordinary confirmation, you know. Um, So the thing, like, progressed like this until uh, I was in London. Um, This must have been uh, about a year before it was published. I went into uh, Watkins Books in Cecil Court. Yeah, famous uh, one. There was this table set out with these wonderful books, beautiful books. And I realized that, you know, I was looking at them, the scarlet imprint, you know, and it's a very strange thing happened to me, Rudolph. I opened them up. I was looking at the page and I couldn't read a single word. I mean, I could see the shapes of sentences and paragraphs on the page. My awareness had shifted so radically, I could no longer actually read what was written but i came out of watkins and i said okay i'm going to connect up with scarlet imprint there's something going on here sure enough the result is the the game of saturn as we have it now so Uh, i I hope is it still is it still available because because i know uh, yeah yeah okay because uh, it was very high on demand i know that yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think the hardbacks are all long gone you know but i, I would thought but i thought so yeah beautiful yeah. paperback uh, is really worth it it's it's a gorgeous yeah, yeah. beautiful I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad enough to have a hardback here in my library wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was miss die which followed two years or one year later yeah, I mean, it was at the launch party of Game of Saturn. I, I said to Peter Gray, you know, I had a, I have a passion about the Villa of the Mysteries in Pompeii and the beautiful mm-hmm. sequence of frescoes that decorate its walls. And from my perspective, this is one of the most important uh, esoteric documents to have descended from pagan period to modernity. I can't think of another document quite like it because it gives the phases and stages of initiation into a mystery cult. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it interweaves uh, ritual action with the, um, the other world and otherworldly figures and the mythology and the symbolism of the cult. So it's absolutely extraordinary um, foundation document for the Western esoteric tradition. Right. So that, that was my great passion. It had been a passion for many years. And uh, luckily with the help of Scarlet Imprint, um, because strangely enough, um, the frescoes had just been cleaned. They, they used lasers and they were able to recover the color more or less as it had been when it was first painted, but which is we, quite extraordinary for such an old painting, right? Well, the yeah. fact that it survived the volcano going yes. off yeah. is extraordinary yes. in the first case. So, but Scarlet Imprint uh, were able to obtain imagery of the freshly uh, uncovered frescoes and piecing it together made a beautiful. Um, trip through the Villa of the Mysteries um, fresco room, the Dionysian room, you know, it's yeah. extraordinary work that they were able to achieve. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's really two beautiful books. I can only highly recommend to go there and get them because they are really rare things for esotericists to to also work with somehow because you you can not only admire the book and see the imagery, but you can actually, well, I did at least with the game of Saturn, use them also for meditation, etc. So right. I think it's really, really hard interesting. So let's go back to the power of the healing field to the book that brought us actually here together today. Um, where it links for me for as an outsider into your personal history that we touched on now um, is the encounter, if I may say, between West and so to speak east because uh, the place where you live today is also a bit on the fringe of both and um uh, also in your personal life i think you you had that encounter and in what sense did those encounters geographically and personally um create that bridging between um, esoteric cultures, let's put it that way. If I'm saying something that you don't feel comfortable with, uh, please correct me. That's just how I perceive it from as a reader, right? Okay, can you just clarify the, the question for me? Uh, sure, sure, I can, yes. Um, <laughs> well, you, you seem in that book, um, Bridge Between the Eastern traditions of martial arts of reiki for example of other traditions in the healing uh, pr uh, field with your background and your your experience of the western esoteric tradition which is very strong because you the way you talk about it you are very uh, deeply rooted into that so how did your personal encounter with your wife, I guess, because you mentioned her in your book, also that this encounter was crucial to the development of, of those um, capacities that you describe, and the, the also not only capacities, but also how you got in touch with them at first. Um, how, how did you perceive that? How did those two um, different traditions marry in what you're describing here? Yeah, so it's, it's almost a question about how your life evolves in a certain direction. How, how is it that I came to be in Istanbul, for instance? Yeah. And the seeds of these convergences, these synchronicities, are deep uh, beneath the surface of our day-to-day -day lived lives. Mm. So it's, it's difficult to perceive the pattern from the perspective of the persona that thinks mm -hmm. that it is the author of its own destiny and is profoundly mistaken. <laughs> yeah. I see what you mean. It's, it's a partly good answer. Yes, absolutely. But uh, I see myself here and, and this is a place I love because I'm at ground zero of the Hellenistic tradition. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's Athens, Alexandria and Constantinople, let's say. Yes. This, this is the historic heartland um, mm -hmm. for the mysteries, for the, the whole development of Thurgy. Um, and it is also a 
crossover where we have a kind of uh, Slavic culture meets Asiatic culture meets a Mediterranean and Aegean culture. Um, and it's it's not for nothing that we have so many earthquake lines running through <laughs> where I live. Good point. Good point. Uh, and and uh, we should not probably forget the whole travel that occurred in in uh, in the early centuries of our era um, from Tajik, what is now Tajikistan, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan, etc. Which really there was a crossover between cultures which is a bit neglected sometimes isn't it yeah uh, i mean uh, this is such a, um, a rich zone to live in culturally mm -hmm. um and it, it it's permanently unsettled i've never known a day or a year or a week or a month where there's not some horrendous disaster on the horizon that never seems <laughs> to arrive but <laughs> it's not a place where you can easily be settled the energy here is very shifting and and mm. disturbed and in a way that's um, psychically awakening as well but i was going to ask how does a person who is energetically so perceptive like you describe yourself how does he live with that well the, the roots the cultural roots are so deep I mean, literally two streets away uh, was one of the great temples of Hira. Hmm. You know, uh, across the water is the Hagia Sophia. You know, I've I've just completed a book, uh, Scarlet Imprint. I'm working on it now, uh, in which we will explore the Hermetic and Hellenistic hmm. metaphysics of that building. That's interesting. Um, so you know, and. and Literally a couple of hours drive from where I'm sitting now, I can walk the walls of Troy. Um, I, I can visit Ephesus and Aphrodisias trials and great, great cities in their time. Um, so it's like the wreck of civilization as well. Mm -hmm. And again, that, that, that kind of puts everything in perspective. So we have a modern, ultra-modern city surrounded by the wreckage of previous cultures and great cities that once thrived here. This used to be one of the richest provinces of the Roman Empire. Even the Celts fell in at some point. People oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So... Um, that that's what i meant by the bridge because you're literally at the bridge between asia and europe right mm -hmm. literally um did that inspire also your bridging of those esoteric traditions yeah absolutely um in terms of healing as i say there are sufi lineages here in which hand healing is passed down through the family mm -hmm. so it's not something strange here and, and it's right. still embedded in its uh, original traditions so it has a respect here that it, it cannot garner in, in more westernized uh, places. Right. Um, places more subject to a kind of secular modernism. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other is that, you know, there's deep-rooted traditions of masonry here. Um, I mean, it's always been a bridge. So there's nothing that hasn't crossed the waters and yeah. found its way east, west, and north and south. I mean, Gurdjieff was here when he, he, he left uh, Russia. He lived here. He was kind of, um, he had his uh, training center, first training center here in Istanbul. 
um, and many of his followers um, came from here originally. Yeah. And also, I'm thinking of Sri Aurobindo and uh, the mother. The mother was uh, born in Istanbul. She was Turkish. Exactly. And brought up in Paris. So, mm -hmm. you know, the connections are all around us. Highly interesting. But now let's take, like announced, that musical break that we do every time in the middle of the interview. And after that, we're going to go back to Peter Mark Adams and talk more about his experiences, his thoughts, his knowledge, especially about healing in the second part. There's much more of that healing part in it. So stay tuned. It's very, very interesting. Now, Wendy Rule will now sing for us um, a French song. Actually, that's not at all a jazz song. That's why I said in the beginning it's not all jazz. But she does it also in a jazzy way. Very, very interesting. And um, it's some song you probably all know. It's the beautiful La Vie en Rose that was originally interpreted by Edith Piaf, the wonderful and incredible Edith Piaf. And now the wonderful Wendy Rule is doing that together with Roger Perrin. After La Vie en Rose, we are going to come back with Peter Mark Adams for another 37 minutes, a bit longer today. 37 more minutes of interview with Peter Mark Adams. And at the end of the interview, a third song, this time a real jazz song, Blues in the Night, um, with Wendy Rule and Roger Perrin once again. So... I repeat the order of things, La Vie en Rose to start with. After that, the second part of Peter Mark Adams' interview with me. And then, Blues in the Night, right away after the interview. And of course, after the third piece of music, we will say goodbye and I'll let you know what happens next week. Okay, so... Listen to La Vie en Rose. Je parle un peu français, mais je parle très très mal.
I would like to bring you now to that first encounter, because that's kind of a good link to what you just said. Um, that first encounter that you mentioned in your book, that seems to have um, triggered something in you when you had some personal liver problem. You mentioned that in your book. That's why I, I feel uh, authorized to say it here publicly. Yeah, sure. And you, and you, made that encounter with, I believe it was a Russian healer, right? Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. Maybe as it is a starter new book, I don't think we give anything away if you talk about it a bit more in depth on the contrary, because it's the start in your book, the entrance in your book as well. Maybe it's a good point also to, to describe your personal experiences and um, what you made sure. of them. Sure. Um, I said, I had a, a problem with liver. I mean, I have lived quite well at times, especially when I worked as a management consultant. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to acupuncturist and he had made the diagnosis and had said it would probably take six to nine months uh, with regular treatments to alleviate it. Um, and it was shortly after that that this woman introduced herself to us. She was just um, here from Moscow. She had actually worked, as she said, a, an MD, in, in Moscow, and had also undertaken training in bioenergy. Hmm. But again, she's one of these exceptional people with very high levels of energy. Hmm. And um, she wanted to demonstrate her skills. So, um, of course, I'm, I'm up for that. So she very quickly just passed her hands over me and immediately diagnosed the liver problem you know, in, in, in an instance, and she offered to treat this. So again, I said, fine, I'm, I'm up for that. Um, and then what happened was a sequence of events which um, proceeded on two different levels, one of which was what happened physically, and the other is what happened energetically. And physically, she kind of brought her own energy into a focus. She massaged the liver very briefly, And then using her breath, she kind of drew the problem from the liver into herself. In other words, she, 
underlying the physical problem was an emotional issue, as is so often the case. And she was able to extract that energetically into herself. And having done so, I could see the emotion etched on her face as, as she had taken the whole thing upon herself. And then she just blew and dispelled the entire thing. And at this point, energetically, I kind of collapsed into a kind of ecstatic laughter. My own energy surged so high, I kind of laughed in this like ecstasy for like half an hour. Okay. So it, once this procedure was over, I returned to the acupuncturist within a day or two, and he, he always starts the session off checking again. And he said, I can't find any trace of the liver problem. Hmm. He was absolutely astounded, you know. Absolutely astounded, as was I. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. You you said a few things uh, here, which I find really interesting, and I would like you to 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 explain a bit about that. First, maybe you not opposed, but you said a little bit uh, uh, as a kind of opposition between the physical and the energetical. And I find that interesting. Can you can you develop on that? Because one could think that energy is also a physical manifestation of something because it's talking about physics not about the body right so can you can you explain that a little bit yeah i think that what we're at a kind of turning point uh, in our intellectual uh, progression or progress or evolution in the west right now um mm -hmm. Uh, namely that there's a growing consensus around the fact that consciousness is interwoven with reality at every point so that we inhabit a, a, a truly living universe. Um, and, and what this means is that looked at from, as it were, one side of the coin, you have a qualitative view which is your awareness. It is memory. It is ancestral memory. And on the other side of the coin, you have energy matter, which is quantitative. It's measurable. Okay. But there's only one coin. Mm -hmm. okay? So when I talk about physical and the emotional and consciousness aspects, it's these two views that we have of reality. And that is clear. Yes, sure. No, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. so it, it, but there's only one reality. Yeah. Yeah. But no. why is energy opposed? No, op I don't like the word opposed in that context exactly <laughs> because it's one reality. But why is it apart? Let's put it that way from the physical aspect. Is energy not a part of the physical aspect? Is it something in okay, your view different? What I, what I was trying to uh, highlight there was the phenomenology of the okay. encounter, okay, yes. as opposed to the physics. But okay. those two are not in opposition. Yes, okay, okay, okay. So it's yeah. how, how, it, how it's experienced at the time. Right, right, uh, right. That's yeah, what yeah. I was alluding to as the energy. That's yeah. how it okay. works. No, that, that makes it clear to me. Yes, yeah. uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Another aspect that I wanted to and to develop on, because I think it's and it's very, very, a very important part of your book is breath. Hmm. Breath as a, a means of using, changing, working with energy. 
Yes. Yeah. Can you uh, can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, I think there's famous line of Deepak Chopra is that the breath is the junction of mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so my experience with the breath is via rebirthing breath work, which okay. I I. I I went through and I, I was practicing. I, I was facilitating rebirthing breath work. I think you should explain that a little bit. What, so what it is exactly? Let me clarify what rebirthing breath work is. When people are seeking solutions in life, they either have a specific issue and they can talk about that, but very often they just have a sense that things haven't gone the way they should have that in some way they've fallen short of their own potential mm-hmm. and that there's something missing, but they don't want talk therapy and they're not able to articulate this. And at this point, something like rebirthing breath work can be an ideal solution because it's purely energy-based. There's no talk component of it. It's very simple to do and it's incredibly powerful. But it's not for everyone because of that intensity. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very simple technique, and all it requires is what we call circular breathing. So if you're, you use the nose or the mouth, not both, and you inhale and relax the exhale. But there's no gap between inhale and exhale whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that your complete circuits of energy on the subtle body, mm-hmm. the key or inner energy grows very, very quickly exponentially as you within two or three minutes of circular breathing it will start to surge within your body and the the surge of the energy has a cleansing effect okay but because you're progressing in a non-cognitive way there's no discussion there's no framing it's just raw energy the results of it will play out in the days weeks and months after and you'll find yourself shifting in your life all of a sudden. So the relationships that were problematic in the past suddenly cease to be so because energetically you have changed. So you find actually your, your awareness or your consciousness is running to catch up with the changes that are now manifesting in your life. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, powerful technique for change, for, for making change happen in a fairly short order. We're getting to breath in, immediately back to that. But what you say here again, like what we mentioned about theurgy earlier, mm. that is a technique that is also very present under the name of circular breathing or or other names in the Western tradition, in Western magical uh, um, exercises, preparation exercises for for theurgy and for other magical experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so many um, modes of using the breath, you know, integrative, um, using it in conjunction with the opening of certain channels, the energy channels, and rebirthing, which is like the blast furnace of breathing. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, rebirthing, I find the term very interesting because, of course, many of those Western and Eastern traditions, the the, the Osiris myth or the, the masonry Hiram myth, uh, yeah. etc. They are exactly that, right? Yeah. They are rebirth in a certain way. 
Mm. Yes, they are. And the, the reason I think that rebirthing is, is an apt uh, description for the technique is that so much of the emotional baggage that we carry in life may have formed in the womb or during the birth process. So that it's not uncommon during rebirthing sessions that memories associated with the process of birth are activated and dissolved. So there's actually a real physical connection through the breath with the birth process. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you think of it yeah. very, very clearly, absolutely. So, but I kind of interrupted you in your development on breath. Sorry. So you were just no, mentioning that. Let me turn the narrative back on you, uh, Rudolf. Yes, uh, please. Another of the, um, I was telling you about the extraordinary uh, Reiki teacher I had. And another f uh, factor with her was the powerful meditations that she led us with. Mm. And in one of them, I found myself in this room with black and white checkered floor. And as I looked down to my right in this kind of dream space, there was a coffin lying there and I was lying in it. Okay. It reminds us of something, doesn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So now I'm not a Mason, but in that meditative space, somehow I had encountered the Masonic egregore. And the Absolutely. strange thing is I turned to the left and I went up through a light, great light above me, and a fundamental change came over me. I totally stopped drinking and smoking the day after. Okay. So you're talking about this metaphor of birth or rebirth. Yeah. <laughs> this particular right uh, hinges upon. But actually, in my case, it, it generated a real effect in my life immediately. And it's, it's never changed since then. That, that's interesting. Also, that it was so immediate is interesting, yeah. right? Not not a progressive uh, no. step by step, but yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. tell everyone I never gave up smoking and drinking. I just stopped. <laughs> so I leave that's the door open. Yes, I leave the door open. <laughs> big difference. Big difference. Um, you said, and that brings me to maybe two difficult questions. Maybe not for you, but um, could be. Um, you said uh, it solves emotional problems, but the rebirthing uh, experience, this breathe, uh, experience, breathing experience is not for everyone because it triggers a lot of very strong uh, feelings and emotions. And, and um, so in general, he, spiritual healing, the healing field, as you call it, mm. um, is it something that is open I'm not talking about being a healer, but about being the recipient, being the, 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 the patient, so to speak. Um, is it open to everyone? Do you think the person has to believe in what is happening or has, has to have a certain spiritual experience? Or is it open to really anyone? Uh, what's, what's your take on that? It, it's absolutely open to anyone. It doesn't require any belief whatsoever, right. but it does require you to keep your mind open. Um, and, it, and it requires you to, to take your own healing seriously. That's to say, if you're mm -hmm. eating a lot of processed food and drinking a lot of junk, um, 
it's kind of counterproductive. And certainly with the more spiritually oriented uh, types of healing like Reiki, it's better that you're on the frequency with it because you're dealing, you're not dealing with a, like an electrical supply or something. You're dealing with spiritual beings. Hmm. Okay. So everyone has a destiny and, and, and to align yourself with them is one of the most powerful things you can do in life. So this is not um, separate from the healing process, either as a healer or person seeking healing. It's a very intensive space in that respect. Mm -hmm. So we can separate, as it were, physical uh, mechanisms like rebirthing, uh, emotional freedom techniques, um, mind connection healing, these types of physical healing activity from the other extreme, which are more thergic, uh, Reiki, Reiki initiations, um, Mm -hmm. higher order initiations, such as those that are conducted in the higher yoga tantra. And you have a spectrum of healing possibilities that anyone can select from and find the ones that are most suitable for them and the most uh, compatible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Belief is not an element in any of them. Okay. okay. Open-mindedness is definitely. Uh, I was going to say, but the opposite. If you if you are refusing to the possibility that this can help you, it won't help you. But that's like reminds me of the joke that the guy who was keeping coughing and he made a friend said, "Well, didn't you see a doctor?" And said, "What did he say?" Well, I should stop smoking. Said, "Okay, what did you do?" I changed doctor. You know, so that's that, that that's a bit that exactly. reminds a bit of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. But um, then and now the second difficult question, and that one might be a bit more difficult indeed. Um, you mentioned also in the very beginning, because I triggered you on that with the Reiki experience, of course, that there are um, practic- practitioners around who take those things less seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they might create hope in people who are really seriously ill um, through promises they are not they are not taking seriously enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, so maybe you could just give us your point on that and how also to find out about those things and how to avoid as a patient yeah. to avoid yeah. those traps. Okay. So there's a couple of things that, for instance, in our own practice, um, we're not um, we're not operating in a way that would be suitable for anyone with a serious psychotic illness. Mm -hmm. The techniques may be effectual, but we can't provide the backup and support. So we cannot take cases of schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, all of those heavyweight things. Also, we don't Mm -hmm. take people who are under psychiatric um, control. Yes. Okay. It's very important that you know your limits. Or psychopharmaca as well, right? Probably, right? That is another one. And we're certainly not in the business of telling anyone to stop taking the medicine that they've been Mm. prescribed. We're not. Um, So people need to understand that. Um, You can always find professionals, psychotherapists and psychiatrists who use the energy techniques. And that's a far better path to go on. Mm -hmm. And then you'll find that the techniques help you to give up 
on the medicine that you've been taking. So, you know, alleviate the effects of the anxiety you have. Okay. So that's one as one part of the answer to your question. Yes. But if, if, yeah, absolutely. But if somebody feels the, the, the need uh, or to, because they have tried other things and that had not helped and um, they need to find somebody who helps them in that way because they want to go along that path um, how do they actually avoid those traps of what can you I mean it might be too difficult to say but how can you give a guideline what what would be the, the, the trap right sure mm-hmm. first of all for the technique um, that somebody's offering you need to know who they learned it from yeah. And that, that person needs to be like, if it's emotional freedom techniques, we know they were developed by Gary Craig in California in the 80s. And there needs to be, again, some form of lineage connection there. That's number one. Secondly, mm. there needs to be referral. There have mm. to be people in the community who will vouch for that person. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have those two elements, you're better off not uh, taking a risk. I mean, if you have a serious ailment, you shouldn't bother. So it needs research. You have to find Mm. who who in your community, who has a good reputation, sound training and an established practice over, you know, at least three or four years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and and if you do that, you're going to find very reputable people in your, your right. And probably more and more so, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, depending possibly also a bit on the area of the world you live in. There's also systems of of like certification that, you know, reputable teachers will run. Mm -hmm. So that certification should be checked. If it's it's a sui reiki, then they should know their lineage. They should be able to show it to you immediately. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, practical steps need to be taken by anyone because it's a free market out there. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say to people is whatever um, modality you take up, you should always be in your comfort zone with it. Comfortable with the person you're working with, comfortable with the intensity, comfortable mm. with the results you're getting. And, and mm. you need to manage that because your comfort zone is unique to yourself the experiences you have are unique to yourself. You can't compare them to other people's. A lot of people will have had uh, Reiki initiations who didn't have the experiences I had. Okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, so the expectations need to be managed and people need generally to, to do those things, which are common sense. That's to say, if you have an illness, you need to stop making it worse through your food and drink. These are two of the biggest irritants in the modern world today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. You need to get control of that first and foremost. Absolutely. And now this maybe leads us a bit off from, from the main topic, but maybe just for a minute. Um, it, in the Western civilization, it's become more and more difficult for the average people, also for money reasons and for practical reasons, to find the food uh, that is valid, that is good quality. I mean, I mean, when yeah. you talk about uh, vegetables or fruit, it in 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 Central Europe, it has become really difficult to buy 
good fruit um, at a price that is affordable for, well, anyone, but I mean, for a large proportion of the population. And that is a problem that we encounter more and more, but that's just a little, a little, a little yeah. uh, thought, which has nothing to do really with your book, but it, but it, it is it's a reality. It's a, it's a sad fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing it increasingly in more and more countries. It's like spreading out from Europe with Absolutely. the kind of standardization of fruit and vegetables. Yes. Um, and the, the intervention of Big Pharma in the way these vegetables yes. grow and are um, produced. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at a kind of <laughs> disaster unfolding. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you just, did you just get that funny point? You said like those vegetables are grown, which is the real word for it. And I said are produced because yeah, that's yeah. the word is, that is often used nowadays. And it's, it shows exactly the, the bad development that's happening there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, there's another term in that book that I, for clarification of, of many of our listeners here, I would like you to develop a little bit on that. You, you're talking about C. Do you pronounce in proper English psi, P-S-I, psi or psi? Psi, psi, you say. We say psi in German. I never okay. know how to pronounce that correctly. So psi uh, abilities. Um, um, and of course, that is a word that in the traditional Western esoteric occult tradition is a bit looked at in a shy way, let's put it gently, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, as somebody who is well-respected, by those people, I'd love you to to explain what psyabilities you mean and what 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 aspect they have in in respect to healing, etc. Well, I talked earlier about the feel like nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a lot of us still have a hangover from a mind body dualism. Okay, so we think we are our awareness is isolated in our brain is somehow it's generated by our neural activity. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, we intellectually at least probably accept animism. We probably accept pantheism, but there's still a gap, which is in our understanding of phenomena. So when we're talking about psi, the model reverts to the mind brain duality. And in that condition, it's kind of inexplicable. Okay, if we really take the revolution and move our, our, our intellectual awareness across to a unified field, uh, and we can call this field a morphic field if we want to mm -hmm. be more scientific about it. But the point is, it is a universal field of consciousness. The monades and, that Dundee called like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah or yeah. or the, the A field, I think it's called, mm -hmm. or the, the knowing field. Uh, Albrecht Moore calls it. Yep. Uh, we haven't got around to Bert Hellinger yet, but maybe <laughs> we will. <laughs> um, so if we have a field of consciousness, the question is how we move our awareness within it. Mm. Okay. So again, there is a longstanding uh, tradition within Western esotericism that the movement of awareness is within our grasp. We do it through whether it's entheogenically induced or whether it is actually uh, shamanic uh, vision 
quest or whatever. So we just need to extend that a little and realize that whenever, uh, for instance, a healer and, and um, a person seeking healing come together, a field is generated around them. When a group of people come together in a symbolic formation, and whether that's family constellations or ritual, a field is generated. Okay. That field is the mechanism by which our awareness, our localized awareness, accesses the larger field of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when we access that larger field of consciousness, we are in a field that's non-local and atemporal. That's to say, you can have conversation with the ancestors, you can find water supplies, you can understand the illness of somebody and the crux where that trauma happened in their childhood without them even saying anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything becomes accessible. Right. Is that can that be translated into this Western occultist speak by egregore somehow? Exactly. So the egregore is a ritually built form that mm-hmm. serves a specific exactly to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But the same principle is coming into play whenever, for instance, people run a family constellation. You place the people who are representing the family members in the middle of the room in a symbolic relation to each other. And immediately you do that, they access the thoughts, memories, the feelings, even the physical attributes of the people they're representing, even if those people are long dead and gone. Right. That's, you know, and this is a routine occurrence. It sounds like magic, but this is a routine occurrence. Anyone can go and verify for themselves attend a few sessions of family constellation therapy um, just as an observer, a uh, participating observer. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and just so uh, uh, an experienced healer like m- my partner, Kenzie, when she is with a client, there's a field immediately appears. And within that field, Kenzie can read the important crux of that client's traumatic experience whether it was in this life or a previous life doesn't matter, but it's always the emo- the emotion and the event that is critical to their achieving healing at that moment. So the field has a navigational capacity. Our intent is sufficient to navigate this atemporal non-local field. Mm-hmm. I want to add one other thing to this, if I could, if I'm not overloading the narrative. Not at all. The traumas embedded within the field that we're seeking to heal have an ethical dimension. Mm-hmm. They are violations of sovereignty, generally, of an individual. All right. And when you extract that violation from the field and you heal it, you heal the field. Okay. This is where spiritual evolution meshes in with healing and spiritual growth and development. Okay. The field is an ethical field. Spiritual evolution is an ethical process of advancement. Okay. You created a field here because I had one of my questions that I put down here still lingering there. And I just wondered if I could still ask it because it just didn't fit in, but now suddenly it opens because that's 
to me, correct me if you see that differently. Um, to me, I was going to ask uh, the only Western classical esoteric tradition that I know of that speaks very clearly about healing, but even there it's been pushed a bit into the background is Rosicrucianism. Yeah. Uh, and Rosicrucianism has a very, very strong ethical aspect. And I would say the healing meaning to heal, meaning taking the word from the root, that means to become whole again, um, um, is a very deep Rosicrucianal aspect. And it's an ethical aspect, as you say, give the person the, the wholeness back to and that also means their sovereignty, their their integrity, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you see, so that was the question, how do you see Rosicrucianism in its classical form uh, and their power of healing, so to speak, related to what you speak about? I, I think healing has always been funda fundamental to the esoteric path. Mm. Uh, it's it's possibly uh, a fairly late distortion um, arising from the late or, or, or post-Masonic ritual magic Egyptian-based ideology characteristic of Golden Dawn and, and, and all of those types of group that they, their program didn't seem to encompass healing as a fundamental aspect of their activity, of their objectives. It's like they, they always um, had a higher focus, as it were. But the problem with any higher focus is unless the foundation is set, uh, it's unstable mm -hmm. and it cannot be sustained. Mm. So I, I, I think generally in Western esotericism, we have tended to lose out because healing has not gone along with yeah. Yeah. esoteric movements and their development. And, and now that we have a whole slew of new healing technologies, esotericism has fallen right behind. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, healing is now ahead of it in terms of, of its achievements. I know that's a very controversial thing to say. Okay, well, uh, I, th I like that. I like that. And, and I, uh, I have to think about that more, but I, th I, I, I think that's, that's a really great answer also to the question I had, because as I said, Rosicrucianism is of uh, healing is of course part of the doctrine, so to speak. Um, but it's, it's very rarely present in day to day Rosicrucian um, ritual, let's put it that way, right? Or, or practice. So, so to be more specific then, balancing the elements within oneself, which are part of the initiatory path on the tree of life, for instance. Is healing. Is, not, is should be healing. <laughs> yes, yes. But they've become kind of graduation points mm -hmm. in a knowledge-based <laughs> system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's... You can test the result by the behavior of people high up in those trees. And I don't want to say more than that. <laughs> yes, let's let's put the trees where they are. Exactly. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I think everyone understood. Everyone understood. Well, Peter, 
unfortunately we are at the end of the time that we are given here and it was as i expected a fascinating hour and uh, bit over an hour with you um i won't let you go before i've asked you two things one um you mentioned something so maybe that's already part of the answer but Tell us more about it, uh, what your next project will be, next book project or other project we should know about. So you mentioned something about Hagia Sophia. Um, that might probably be it, or maybe that's another project that you have uh, before that. Um, well, well, what can we expect from you in the near future? Uh, I think there's, there's two things that have been big interest to me. One is the mysteries of Eleusis. Oh. Again, it's one of those foundational uh, elements of the West. I was Indian going Federation. to say just that. <laughs> yeah. So my question, or my question to myself, was: What happened when the sanctuary of Eleusis was destroyed at the end of the fourth century? And I have an answer. So that's going to be, I hope, coming out yes. later no. this year. Later this year. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. uh, the other one, I think, uh, may well be um, just as missed, I saw to recover the ritual process of the rites of Dionysus, hmm. um, a project to recover the ritual process of the rites of Mithras. Well, well, well. Um, Dionysus, Mithras, Eleusis, um, you cover it all, don't you? <laughs> that's great that's great and what about the Hagia Sophia so is that is that far further off or or, or? no that, that, that's connected to Eleusis and Eleusis. I will dem demonstrate to the world what that connection is very 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 interesting <laughs> so we'll we'll speak about that I'm sure we'll meet again here final final it's not even really a question but I I have Nowadays, well, the last few months, I started to get into that habit. People hate me for it. Asking my guests um, for a final words to our listeners. So um, I'm sure you have some good final word for our listeners here. Yeah, I would I urge everybody to grab hold of one or two of these modern healing techniques, mind connection healing, Reiki, Usui Reiki, um, EFT, the tapping technique, rebirthing breath work, just grab one or two and master it. Become a master in that so that you are effectively giving yourself healing and you can help others to heal. And that way we correct the field. And when the field is corrected, we evolve as a species, as sentient beings on this planet. And that's spiritual evolution. It is an ethical process. Absolutely. Great words. And that's, that's know thyself, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Peter, thank you so much. Great to have you and all good luck for your future projects. Oh, it's been my, my pleasure, Rudolf. Lovely to talk to thank, you. Thank you. Give you the big ass
Wonderful Wendy Rule and Roger Perrin, her colleague and musician friend, who did those wonderful three classics from the jazz C repertoire. They did it in a jazz way. The repertoire in itself was not fully classic. So if you want to know more, as I said, go to their Bandcamp page and you'll find the link on uh, the website.hermes.com in the show notes to this episode. And now a big, big thank you to Peter Mark Adams for a wonderful talk that I could have with him. It was great to have him on the show. Finally, as you heard, we've been together on another show before on Occult of Personality, whose host, Greg Kaminsky, was my guest last week. And you seem to enjoy that interview highly. If you haven't done so yet, go and listen to it um, has had a very, very good response. So, and this was it for today and for this episode. So, um, next week, last episode of the season, of season 7, episode 24, and my guest next week will be Patrick Dunn. Patrick Dunn, a linguist professor from the Chicago area, but of course, the author of uh, quite a number of very interesting books, on magic, also one, the first one that he wrote called Postmodern Magic, which I find really groundbreaking. And we had a lovely talk, so Patrick Dunn is going to be my guest next week, and we will together close season eight. And now I just can hope that you're going to have a good week. I hope that you enjoyed this week's show, and I hope that you're all going to return next week and especially I hope that you keep safe and healthy in those proving times. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.